consider making a donation to the podcast via Venmo to the username at NQCATX. Hello and welcome to Next Quest Podcast, where I ask your potential therapist questions so you don't have to. I am your host, Noah S. Garcia, Licensed Professional Counselor Supervisor. Today, I welcome to the show, Sean Austin, Licensed Professional Counselor, who will be speaking about her practice in an area of clinical focus. Adults Healing from Childhood Trauma. Welcome to the show, Sean. Thank you. Happy to be here. This is exciting. Never been interviewed before. Yeah, I'm excited too. Um, like we had talked about earlier, I've seen your name here and there, and, and I've seen it come up, and you know, I was mm-hmm. hoping eventually mm-hmm. we, our paths would cross, and, and here we are. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, that it did. You put out a request for therapists who are willing to be interviewed, and I was like, oh yeah, I'll do that. I love it. And thank you. Thank you for volunteering for this. So yeah. to get us started, what are your credentials and experience? Um, so I am a, a licensed professional counselor. I have my master's in uh, counseling. I've been doing this for about, if you count, about five years, including when I was a licensed intern, mm-hmm. uh, about a year and a half fully licensed as of right now. Um, but since as soon as I started grad school, I started focusing my training on working with adult trauma, adults with trauma. So every class I was taking, I was like, does that apply? <laughs> does that apply? Can that help? How can I turn this this way? Can I write a paper about this to make it more accurate towards what I want to be doing? You know, I was always aiming it that way as much as I could. Yeah. Yeah. So congratulations on getting fully licensed a year and a half ago, by the way. It's a huge accomplishment. Um, You know, I think that we get put through an inordinate amount of stress uh, during our uh, internships, associateships, whatever they're called now. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah. so, So Sean, what is the name of your practice? So my practice is Healing History Counseling. Okay, cool. 
Now, at your practice, do you accept insurance? If so, which ones? If not, why not? I do not accept insurance, um, primarily because they want you to jump through lots of hoops and then pay you less. Yep. And if I'm going to get less money, I'm going to do it with no hoops. (laughs) (laughs) I totally, I'm right there with you. That's why I I made the move to private pay. Yeah. So I am actually right this right now in the process of working with a company called Advocate who will process for my clients their out-of-network paperwork. So I get paid up front. They only get paid, they only have to pay for what Advocate thinks is their portion. And then Advocate waits for the money to come from the insurance company. I've got to look into that. That's interesting. (laughs) I've always been curious about how people who who like regularly help clients with out-of-network reimbursement. I've always been curious how people go about that. Yeah, I don't understand it really well myself, but they're, we're starting that, that this, I've got like one more conference with them and then I'm up and running. Cool, cool. So I would imagine, you know, that you probably have a sliding scale or reduced fee structure. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. I, I firm believer that there is a very strong connection between having childhood trauma and being in poverty. For sure. Uh, I, I work a science scale in the way of, um, I don't know if I'd call it honor system. It's just more like what I say to my clients is I don't want to dig into your finances. I don't think that builds a relationship. So what I have done is I have figured out as low as I can go and still be present in the room and be fully focused right? Yeah. on our work. And that lowest number for me is $80 a session. Mm-hmm. What I say is between that fee and my full fee, I want you to find where you can go in there and still come every week because trauma work is slow, hard work, period. Never mind if you try and go every other week or every once a month. Right. Then it just stalls and stops. Yeah. And so I also run, um, I keep two slots open for open path. Mm-hmm. And I do one client through the, um, the queer teen group, out youth or. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. You. Yep. So I see cool. one of their overflow clients. Cool. Very cool. Now, do you have weekend or evening appointments available? Yes, to both. Uh, evenings can be a bit hard because everybody wants evenings. Um, yeah. But I see clients on Tuesday and Thursday by video, which I guess is your next question, and Wednesday and Saturday in person. And I'm not a morning person, so you can't get a scheduled appointment before 10 a.m. And I prefer <laughs> 11. I am the exact same way. When I, I just, I cannot be a functional person before 10 a.m., you know, and mm-hmm. I just am a much better therapist after 10 a.m. with some coffee. <laughs> yes. Yep. Yep. I don't mind getting up before 10 a.m. 
I have no problem with that, but I want to sit on my couch yes. and pet my puppy dog and drink my coffee and be lazy for an extended period of time. I am the same way. I wake up at 7.30. Monday, I start at 10. And the rest of the week, I start at 11 or 12. So, <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm not a morning person. I don't, I'm not going to happen. So it sounds uh, like you're doing both telehealth and in person. Yes, I am. Mm-hmm. Okay, cool. Do you plan to kind of stay half and half or, or do you know what things are going to look like moving forward? Um, I'm probably going to stay half and half because I'm also in the process of getting my California license. Cool. Um, that's primarily because Texas feels a little crazy right now. And I figured a backup plan would be a good idea. Heard. And a number of clients have left Texas and gone to California. So I was like, well, if I have a California license, both A, I'll have a backup plan, and B, these clients that keep going to California, I won't have to stop working with. So. Yeah, I, I have plans at some point. It's on my long-term to-do list, but I want to get licensed in Oregon, Colorado, and Washington. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't think I could do any of those states because of either rain or cold. <laughs> true, true. Um, <gasps> now, I, I, I really would love for our listeners to hear this story, just, you know, knowing a little bit from what we talked about earlier, you know, for our audience, is being a therapist your first career, if not, what was and, and what happened <laughs> to? <sighs> oh, my God. No, it's not my first career. So I am a year and a half into being fully licensed and I am 50. Um, not my first career at all. My very first career would probably be my parents' pottery business when I was a kid. Uh, From there, it was a variety of health-related hourly jobs. And then then a lot of retail-related hourly jobs until I figured out that I needed to go back to school. I was like, okay, I'm never going to be able to afford to go back to school on an hourly job kind of wage. So then I became a truck driver. I put everything I own into a storage unit and went for training with a company and spent six years over the road. I have been in every state in the country except for Alaska and Hawaii. And I don't want to go to Alaska. (laughs) (laughs) That's so cool. Um, You know, retail, I think, I think customer service period is so difficult. It is so Mm -hmm. difficult and so many people don't watch or pay mind to how they treat people in customer Mm -hmm. service industries. And it's really disheartening sometimes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, I I mean, I, for the most part had pretty good customers experience. I worked grocery stores predominantly and there it's helping people find stuff. You know, the yeah. real anger usually comes out up front, and mm-hmm. I was never up front. <laughs> um, so. What would you say it was that ultimately drew you to being a therapist? Like, how did that come about after being on the road for six years? Well, no, I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist. Uh, probably University of New Hampshire, which is where I started with my undergrad. Um back in my 20s. I was like 24, 25. Um, And I took my first psychology class and I was just hooked. I was like, oh my God, this is it. 
this, this is the thing. Um, but I had had therapists of my own already, a couple of them, and enough to pull out and get clear in my head that there were some really bad therapists out there. And those therapists that were really bad seemed to share the theme that I saw of not having dealt with their shit. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, hadn't looked at it at all, you know, kind of thing. Um, and they were, you know, like doing vicarious therapy for themselves and totally not helpful for a client um, because they weren't focused on the client. So when I took that class and I have my own trauma history, you know, and it's not, you know, a little thing. It took me a long time to do it. In fact, the point that I was in that class, I had not yet said aloud to anyone, including all the therapists I'd have, I had not said aloud what had happened to me. So I was sitting there in this class, loving this class, but also going, oh, no, no, no. I am not going to be one of those shitty therapists. Mm-hmm. <laughs> not going to happen. Yeah. Okay. I mean, I think all therapists wind up as therapists because we've either struggled with something ourselves, we've seen mm-hmm. other people close to us struggle, mm-hmm. you know. Um, you know, and it comes from that place, I think, of wanting to be helpful in that way, you know, oh, through, yeah. through our education yeah. and experience. Um, yeah, but it's, it's not what's happened to us that makes us good therapists. It's how we've overcome it. Right. You know, and all the work we did to overcome it, to get through it, to do, deal with it. Right. That's the thing that can allow our own personal traumas to be an asset. Right. Right. I totally agree. And I also would piggyback on that and say, I think having a variety of life experience as a therapist is invaluable. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I, uh, I definitely have a, a plethora of understandings of the world. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Same. Um, so. so tell us a little more about yourself. Like what are your hobbies, interests, TV shows you're watching, music you're listening to, pets, etc. Oh, geez. Okay. So, um, hobbies, stuff I like to do. I like to build things with the best build thing I have ever done is I built a 10 foot by 12 foot shed all by myself. Nice. And it was both terrifying and (laughs) awesome all at the same time. Yeah. Little side story there. I was, I had the floor of the shed built and it was out in the, you know, on its foundation and all that stuff. And, uh, I needed to build the first wall and I was just overwhelmed. It seems too much. And then a friend of mine, I'm talking to her and telling her how it's too much. And she's like, Sean, it's just a floor stood up. <laughs> I was like, duh. And I've done that already. <laughs> <It's awesome>. Yeah. <laughs> Started working on it the next day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So building stuff. Yeah. Building stuff. Um, so I have a collection of dragons because one of those things that got me through my childhood was science fiction and fantasy and any time where there was a dragon preferably a dragon that was the good guy not the dragon that was the bad guy uh i was there i was totally there i was like totally into that 
So I have a whole good big collection of dragons, which I've now gotten my son involved in, which is <laughs> both good and bad. I am a crime show watcher. So Criminal Minds, NCIS, all those dark and, you know, kind of crazy people doing crazy stuff, but scripted, not actual real world. I am into. Uh, I'm a huge true crime buff. Like, I I love true crime. I mean, my wife is. Yeah. 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 Oh, my God. Yes. I, I love I love true crime so much that I double majored in psychology and criminal justice because that meant I got to take classes on law and forensics. (laughs) (laughs) That second degree was really more of like a hobby to me than it was like, I had no intention of becoming a police officer or, you know, uh, uh, what are they called? Uh, a corrections officer or, or, or a parole officer like those mm-hmm. were, were never even remotely on my radar. Mm-hmm. Totally. It's like um, that piece about uh, you, we do these things just because of this, like a little personal satisfaction. You know, yeah. I took two, two extra science classes at my undergrad in order to be able to say I have a BS in psychology <laughs> rather than a BA. There's something about saying I have a bullshit degree in psychology (laughs) that just resonates for me. And I literally took two extra science classes so I could do that. I love that. Okay. So we've got so far, we've got building uh, crime dramas. Uh, You have, you have a kid and dragons and a wife. Um, What about actually I have two kids and a wife and right now a nephew living with us but so our daughter is full grown out in the world doing her thing right now she's back in home because hiccup in life she needs to get back on her feet um but she brought her dog with her and unfortunately we already have two dogs so we now have in this house three dogs and four cats which is awesome but just a little insane (laughs) because now there's five people here yeah yeah hey that's a lot of love to be had in that house yeah yeah it is it's a little insane at times at times we're like okay i'm climbing climbing the bedroom for total privacy to just be alone (laughs) (laughs) okay very cool very cool um so also curious you know you work with trauma in the work that you do with clients what modalities do you tend to draw upon what are the tools in your really, toolbox? Yeah, well, I, I lean real heavy on parts work. So parts work is, you know, the aspects of self that are kind of less aware of us, we're less aware of, uh, and kind of getting more aware of those parts. And I also work with EMDR. Okay, okay. Do people tend to seek you for one or the other or both? Or? Um. No, they tend to seek me out because they want trauma. to work on their tra- trauma. Yeah, uh, I've had a few cases where someone has been sent over to me to do EMDR and then go back to their therapist. Gotcha. And that's been cool. I've never done that before. That was a new one for me. I was like, cool. Yeah, I'll try it. I'm open to that. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, how would you say your clients would describe or experience you? Um... 
Well, I think one of the things I've already noticed first is I swear a lot. So if you're a person who doesn't like swearing, move on to the next therapist because I am not Fuck your yeah. option. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I, I, I spent six years as a truck driver. I have that truck driver mouth. Uh, that and it just fits and works, and particularly when you're dealing with trauma. You know, being able to really get down to the nuance of the feeling is important. And swear words help with that in ways that nothing else does. Yeah, that's what I tell my clients when they're like, oh my gosh, can I swear in here? And I'm like, you can say whatever the fuck you want. Sometimes there's just no other better word. Like nothing has mm-hmm. quite that connotation as a mm-hmm. cuss word. That's mm-hmm. totally okay. That's how you feel, you know? Mm-hmm. Yep. Yep. So I think the next thing they would probably say is that, and I tend to warn them about this. I'm a bit antsy in my seat. I've got really bad hips. So I move around a lot. So I tend to warn people so they don't think that I'm, I had one client before I started warning people who thought I was bored with them. And I was like, huh. no, my hips hurt. <laughs> That's, there's a therapeutic moment to be, to be had within all that though too. Oh yeah. Yep. Yep. Definitely some transference going on there. Uh-huh. <laughs> so other than that, I usually get from my clients, um, like I just had a termination with a client and they're like, you hold the space for me so amazingly well. I felt totally safe to, to dive in there. And I was like, wow, cool. Yeah. I love getting feedback. Mm-hmm. I mean, all oh, feedback, yeah. really. Any, even if it's negative, like it's, I, I can learn, you know? Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. I, I, when I end with my clients, I'm like, you know, we're having that end session. I'm always like, I want to know all the bad stuff too. If you don't yeah. feel like you can tell me, then send it in a text after you leave. Send <laughs> right, it in an yeah. email after you leave. I want to know it. Yeah. And I think it's yeah. just like, as a therapist, I think getting feedback, I mean, because we don't go around regularly soliciting feedback, right? It's kind mm-hmm. of something that we allow to happen when it happens. Um, and I don't, I think sometimes like there's periods of time where I haven't gotten a lot of feedback, like, Mm -hmm. you know, and and I'm not about to go around soliciting it. So when it does happen, it's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I sent out a survey to my clients the other day when I was thinking about going into working with advocate because I want to know, you know, how important this was, how it would be to them, how useful it would be. And also because they take a huge cut out of my side of the fee. Right. If that, you know, that that would mean my fee having to go up in a kind of exponential way. Mm-hmm. And were people open to that? Were people interested in that? If they wanted it, were they willing to pay for it? Um, and um, that was really cool because I got other feedback too. Because I was like, is there anything else I should be working on in my practice and stuff like that at the end? And that drew out a lot That's of cool. feedback that was pretty positive and neat. Yeah. What, what was the consensus? I'm curious. Uh, two thirds were like, oh my freaking God, yes, we'll pay extra for this. Okay, cool. That's, now, mind you, only half of my clients bothered to do the thing, but two thirds right. wanted to get it. <laughs> right, gotcha. Okay. So. so, going into adults, adults healing from childhood trauma, you mentioned parts work and EMDR. Tell us a little more about your approach to treating adults healing from childhood trauma. Okay. I think the best way 
to kind of conceptualize this is it starts all the way back before we even have our first session. You know, um, one thing, because I'm so aware of how expensive therapy is and how much it is and how much the mesh with the style is important, not with just the therapist, but also how I do things. And I've also discovered that there's only so far I can move away from my default position. Um, so I, what I do is I do it either by video, but I prefer in-person, in-person 30-minute consultation for free. Um, on my website, there's actually a place where people can sign up for those without even having to talk to me. Uh, if none of those times work, then we have to work something else out. But you know, like I keep I keep certain spots open to always slide people into for consults, and that first consult is a little bit about what happened to them, what brought them into therapy, but mostly about so this is how I work, and does this sound like something you'd be interested in working with? Mm-hmm. You know, and that spiel. I mean, I'll give you the whole spiel if you want. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, like tell us tell us a little bit, you know. Yeah, so so childhood trauma is this very unique thing um, of that it is the meeting of too young to deal with something, but it happened, so you have to. Those two things slam into each other, and you're in this impossible situation where the kid can't handle what just happened, whatever it was, but the kid has to handle it. And we have the most freaking amazing brains, okay? Because our brains look around and go, hey, part, you over there, come here. I need you to hold this, and I need you to just chill out and go away for a while. You know, sometimes I'll even say, throw it in the closet, close the door, lock it, paint over it, pretend the door's not even there, put it away. And that's an amazing tool that our brains have figured out how to do to do to deal with impossible shit. Mm-hmm. But what that means is later on in life, once you're not a kid anymore, you've got to deal with this shit. Now, in order to effectively deal with this shit, I have to say you have to go to the beach. Okay. So we've all been to the beach. Okay, and the very first place you get to when you go to the beach is the parking lot. Okay, now a trauma survivor has a lot of familiarity with the parking lot. That is where you can talk about it to the cows come home with absolutely no feeling. Not a bit, not a drop. Okay, parking lot is safe. It's okay to touch it there. But we can't do much healing there. We can do some changing in understanding, but we really can't heal. Problem is, is that most adults who have childhood trauma, who want to heal their childhood trauma, they have the other extreme, which is the riptide. And the riptide is overwhelmed, not okay, drowning, flashbacks, fuck, I'm going to die out there. And you cannot heal trauma out there. Anyone who has gone to a therapist and been out in the riptide with a therapist and left feeling like they didn't get anywhere, 
that's because they weren't actually somewhere where they could do some work. Right. Problem is, is they need a beach. Okay. Now, unfortunately, particularly for around the trauma itself, most kid adults who were kids when the trauma happened, they don't have a beach. They have parking lot and riptide and they're fucking touching and there's nothing in between. So we have to actually start the process by building that beach. Okay. And building that beach starts with how are you about feeling happy emotions? Can you feel when you feel happy? Does that feel safe? If you can, great. How are you about regular everyday negative emotions, the small non-trauma ones? Okay, and what we find is that a lot of times these kids have no idea, these adults have no idea how to feel negative emotions and sometimes even positive emotions. So we have to walk through that first because that is the first couple feet of a beach. Mm -hmm. Feeling those feelings in a way that is not overwhelming, that is not scary, feeling safe enough to feel those feelings. And then once we've got that, then we start moving to smaller kind of not quite trauma, but kind of getting a little rougher, you know, things. And those things, when they can get through those things in a safe way, then we're done. And at the same time, not really at the same time, but before that, we're also setting up the ability to handle flashbacks, the ability to get oneself out of overwhelming emotions. Where I do this thing where I teach my clients tools, um, two tools a day, each week, two tools. I give them a business card. On one side is a riptide tool, and on the other side is a emotional regulation, but not in the riptide kind of tool. And they practice those tools for the whole week. If they come in and they admit they didn't practice them, then we pause and we don't go further until they practice them. Mm-hmm. You know, um, So we're building the tools so that they can handle their emotions outside of the session. Right. Because if, if I'm just steering them through how to handle the riptide in session, I'm not really fully helping them. Right, right. Um, then once we have a beach, then we can start looking at the trauma. And that's where the parts work in the EMDR really comes in big. Yeah, I love, I love parts work. I am a huge fan of that and use that in my work with clients as well. Mm-hmm. And it's just so valuable. Um, yeah. My, my next question is, well, actually, it's two questions, I suppose. When talking about childhood trauma, what sorts of experiences might this include? And then the second question of this is, what are some of the differences between childhood trauma and trauma experienced as adults? Hmm. Okay. So I think we have way too narrow definition of trauma in this country, in this system. Totally agree. Our definition of trauma is just, it's, you know, you know, people trying to give it very specific edges and stuff. And I, my, I, I tend to go the opposite direction. 
So when I'm talking to a client and they're saying, I'm not sure if it's trauma, you know, or if it qualifies, you know, I wasn't raped or I wasn't whatever, whatever, whatever. I wasn't in the military. You know? Yep. Yep. My thing is, hold on. Here's my definition of trauma first, or my definition of childhood trauma first. Did it happen in your childhood? Second, does it feel like time enough has passed that if it was going to heal on its own, it would have healed? And this is just an arbitrary, your own personal opinion. And three, does it still fucking hurt? Mm -hmm. If those three things are met, then it's childhood trauma. Yeah. What it is doesn't matter. What actually happened doesn't matter. You know, it's not like there's actually a hierarchy of, well, you have to be above a 10 in order to qualify as trauma. Right. Yeah. Bullshit. That's kind of like people like worrying that they're not trans enough or, or gay enough mm -hmm. or, you know, you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I, I, I'm curious if you could tell us a little bit more about the differences like between childhood oh. trauma and adult uh, trauma experienced as adults, like in the ways, like, for example, it mm -hmm. might impact somebody. Totally. So the one of the hugest differences is capacity. Okay, so a kid who experiences trauma and develops lasting trauma from it, not a kid who actually gets supported and gets taken care of and gets helped and gets better, but a kid who experiences trauma and doesn't get support around it, um, oftentimes what you see is those kids are in systems that are dysfunctional beyond belief. So it's not just the trauma that happened. It's the lack of parental care and stuff like that that kept them from ever getting supported and getting the help they need, but also kept them from being safe. They didn't have the resources they needed, so they were looking elsewhere, which put them at risk. Right. Those kinds of things, those kinds of issues. So what those do is those show up as feeling overwhelmed and thrown by emotions that regular people without trauma don't get thrown by because they never learned how to handle it because they had to keep on sh shutting it down they had to keep on you know they didn't have the support network around them that prepared them for that now if they grew up in a not so great home but didn't actually develop any trauma they probably figured out on their own some ways of dealing with the world so that when they had adult trauma they at least already had all their coping mechanisms in place. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. You know. Anything else you want to add to that? Um, so I think one of the things that makes trauma, childhood trauma unique is that a lot of times what we're working with is the tools that have been in place since forever that allow that kid to grow up, that get the kid through. The tools that saved their freaking lives are now causing problems. And those tools are the very thing that usually draws them into therapy. Right. I'm drinking too much. I'm, I can't trust anyone and I scream mm -hmm. at them and I expect everybody to leave me. And those tools, so I spend They're a lot no of time- They're no longer serving of, us. Yes, yes, yeah. but here's the thing. The part that's actually saying, hey, do this, doesn't know that. Right. It still thinks it's saving your life. Right. It still thinks that it's 
you know, it's do this or die. Yeah. And we, and we end up reacting at times and being like that part of us becomes triggered, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, with whatever specific trigger that triggers that, you know? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And then that part gets overwhelmed. So in an attempt to get help, it overwhelms the whole. Right. But that then means that the whole is just as overwhelmed as the part. Right. So we're having to teach both the part and the, the whole how to have a better communication system, how to let right. each other know when, hey, I'm a part over here and that shit was not okay for me. Right. You know? And so instead of overwhelming the whole, instead, you know, getting their attention and getting them to help you because when they're not overwhelmed, they actually can help their parts. Right. Yeah, totally. I like to think of it kind of in terms of, I mean, in a lot of ways it's reparenting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So yeah, I often tell, go ahead. I often tell my clients that they get to be the adults they needed. Right. That's exactly it. Yeah. Okay. So in order to work with somebody on their trauma, the first step to that is like somebody has to recognize it as such, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of people struggle to acknowledge their trauma or to qualify the things they've experienced as trauma. And one barrier that I've noticed through my work is just kind of people's tendency to compare their experiences to the experiences of others. Now, what are your thoughts on this? And And what sorts of purposes might this unintentional denial serve? Yeah, well, I think I think the unintentional denial is 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 a way to kind of it's a part saying, hey, it's not that bad. Feel better. Hey, you know. Yes. Yes. And and hoping that that will help. Right. You know, because then you don't. Yeah. Well, because then you don't have to experience the depth and breadth of those emotions. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But. I think also this idea of like, you know, that whole, you have to have this very tightly defined idea of what qualifies as trauma is a great disservice that we've done in this country and will be paying for for years to come. I think because I aim all my advertisements and all my websites and all my Facebook pages and all that stuff towards adults dealing with childhood trauma, I don't tend to get the people who come in to work on anxiety and then have to be walked through getting to the point of, hey, you have trauma. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. You know, I, I get people who are like, I think maybe this is trauma or fuck. Yes, this is trauma. Right. Yeah. And in working with people on trauma, laying a solid foundation is super important. What does that look like and what would you consider to be some of the bricks of this foundation? Okay, so first, it's those tools for handling the emotions on one's own. Getting those in place, uh, working with those. um, While we're doing those, we're building rapport. Because quite simply, I tell clients right away, you don't have to dump your shit on me right away. Matter of fact, I'd rather you didn't. Not because I don't want to hear it, but because I want to earn it. Because if you take your time and you figure out that I'm an ass and you don't want to work with me, 
then at least then you hadn't gone through that whole going through all that painful shit one more fucking time. You saved yeah. yourself one more read through. Right. Okay. And just because that's our job doesn't mean we're good at it. Mm-hmm. So I do a lot of kind of creating a space where they can say, I can say, you know what? I think I'm an awesome therapist, but I might not be your awesome therapist. Right. You know, and it's okay to figure that out. And I want to help you find that awesome therapist for you if it's not me. Mm-hmm. You know, that kind of thing. But so, yeah, so getting solid understanding and ability to handle their emotions outside of session, inside a session, building those, building that beach, getting these supporting tools like the secure container, the safe, the. So, when I was trained with EMDR, I was told that don't call it a safe place, but they called it a safe place and I can't get it out of my head now. <laughs> but that, that chill place, that place where they can go to calm down, to be okay. Okay. Mm-hmm. Getting all those tools in place also. Um, starting to meet parts. And a lot of times when we meet parts, it'll be around an intense issue in session. And then I'll send them home with homework of, okay, so you need to spend time with this part. Need to hang out and have fun. Trauma work doesn't happen outside of here. Trauma work happens in here, but you guys need to build a relationship. So, what did you like to do when you were X years old? Mm-hmm. You know, was that coloring? Okay, you can either A, go buy a bunch of coloring books and actually color, or you can just go into your mind and spend some time in your mind coloring with this part. And sometimes I get these really weird looks and I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, see, this is why I say you should take your time and figure out if you want to work with me because right. I'm a little weird. Well, not only that, but this work is difficult work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And another thing in working with people on trauma is creating a space where the person is able to feel safe, Right. So what is your approach to creating that safe space and being a safe person for your clients? Mm-hmm. Um, a lot of times that starts in that first consultation where when they start to dump out all the trauma, I'll pause them and say, I do want to hear this, but you don't know me well enough to know whether or not I can handle it. And I really don't want you to just dump it out and just be raw afterwards. I was like, I think I should have to earn the right to hear what you need to tell me. Which means I want you to slow down a little bit and tell me in a session or two or three or four or five, if that's what you need. Like, because I would rather you tell me when we actually have that beach and when telling me can actually be healing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I know one of the other questions was about, you know, what's the first session look like? Mm -hmm. My first session is going over intake paperwork, going over the ACEs scale, because that allows me to see if there's anything in other areas, going over the dissociation scale to see if autism, ADHD, and trauma all kind of look a lot alike symptom-wise. Right. 
So I, that, I have found that that scale is a really great way to pull out all the symptoms that might get in the way and start to figure out which ones are what. Mm-hmm. Because if this is a symptom and it's from autism, then cool. I need a whole different set of ways of handling that symptom than I would need if that symptom was from trauma. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. Those two pieces end up being a really great way for me to slow down the process that, you know, and to make connections, but not jump in so deep, you know, which gives me information, gives them information from my side because we spend up getting pieces of the story without getting the whole story. We get the edges and they get to see how I react and respond to that, Mm -hmm. you know, and that kind of thing is, is critical to them figuring out if I'm the one who should have this info. Yeah. If I could help them. Yeah. And building that beach. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, totally. Which I love that metaphor, by the way. Thanks. (laughs) <laughs> so, you know, needless to say, childhood trauma can negatively impact us as adults in a variety of ways, right? So my question is, what are some of the ways that you commonly see childhood trauma continuing to impact individuals as adults? Yeah, yeah. So really obvious ones, addictions. Mm-hmm. Addictions, 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 addictions. I am not an addiction therapist. You know, I don't do, I don't have an LCDC. I don't, not, that's not what I do. But I find that addictions and trauma, particularly childhood trauma, go hand in hand. Because as a little kid, 12-year-old, 10-year-old, whatever age you were, you didn't have access to the resources you need, but maybe you had alcohol. Or maybe you had meth or whatever the heck you had. And that got you through. You know, one of the things I'm always telling my clients is that these are tools that saved your life. Right. So you can't just take a shovel and pick them out and toss them out of the curb. We need to first appreciate what they did. I, I like to frame them as adaptive coping strategies that no longer work for us where we are now. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. So addictions is a really big one. Um, mm-hmm. Relationship and connection issues. So lack of trust in others, diving in with trust too soon and getting hurt over and over again. Um, you know, uh, see. Having really, really big reactions to small things. Mm-hmm. You know, and remember that, that, that emotional cup kind of idea? Yeah, yeah. So I like to tell my clients, you know, if your emotional cup has four rocks in it, and then regular life keeps you filled up to an eight because you actually, regular life has a four, but you've got rocks in there. So it goes all the way up to the eight. Right. Anytime you put anything in there, you're going to overflow. Mm-hmm. And those rocks are your trauma. I like that. Anything else you commonly see? So I think that's pretty common, pretty much relationships. Reactions, emotional reactions, um, boundaries. Bound. Oh God, yes, boundaries. Both. <laughs> it's a big one. Both extremes. Both extremes. Mm-hmm. Um, actually, one of the things that I that I'm telling clients all the time is, 
I don't believe in battering rams, which sounds really weird. <laughs> but a lot of my session today is my, my interview today has sounded really weird. Let me explain. Because childhood trauma is all about loss of boundaries, disrespect of boundaries, not even knowing you had the right to have boundaries. Right. We must respect all parts boundaries. Mm-hmm. So if we're trying to do some work and we walk in and we're like, okay, we're going to work on trauma X today. And a part stands up and goes, no, we're not. Mm-hmm. We stop. We stop and we work with that part until that part says we can. Mm-hmm. Because that part is just as valid as all the rest of it. And it needs its boundaries also respected. Yeah. Consent too. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And you don't know how often clients want to just push their way through that resistant part. They right. want to just, let's just go do it. I'm like, no. Mm-hmm. A, can't remember her name. I did a consult one time around DID. And she said, the slower you go, the faster you get there. And I'm like, yep. Yep. The more you slow down and work with these parts that are in the way, the faster you actually get through all the trauma because you're just going to make more of a mess if you force your way through. Totally agree. Totally agree. Now, I feel like trauma is one of those invisible things that a lot of people struggle with. And on the surface, other people would never suspect that somebody is struggling. I think a part of this is related to some of the more, quote unquote, socially acceptable ways that trauma can impact people, such as things like overworking, hyper-independence, people-pleasing, and perfectionism, which mm-hmm. unfortunately are often positively reinforced by our society, especially a capitalistic society, right? So what mm-hmm. are your thoughts on this? How do you address this with clients? And what do you think is important to communicate to our listeners out there who may be struggling with feeling their struggles are invisible in some yeah, yeah, a lot of a lot of the tools and coping mechanisms that we figure out, we adapt to our adult lives. You know, we we figure out how to work. My, my thing was work. I worked. I worked a ton. I worked a million hours. I could work really 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 well. I had no idea how to play until mm-hmm. I was in my late 30s. Mm-hmm. No idea. No idea what fun meant. You know? So, yeah, totally, totally get that society rewards us for doing these things, which are shooting us in the foot. Right. And at some point, you've got to decide, I don't think I want to do this anymore. There's got to be more. Or I don't want to. What about me? And those, those questions, those voices are also valid. And you know what? You don't have to stop just because because you have questions. You can keep on working that 60, 80 hour week and come to therapy. And you can decide to stop working in a year, in a two, in three, or never. It doesn't require you to, those tools that we use that are now hurting us, that are hiding our pain, we get to keep them. Just because we pick other tools doesn't mean we don't still have those tools. 
doesn't mean we don't still have those resources. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so is there anything else I haven't asked about adult healing from childhood trauma that you feel is important to say before we get back to some more questions about you? Um, I guess the last thing I really would want to put in there is this idea that people often are like, with childhood trauma, I can't deal with that. I can't touch it. Mm-hmm. It will kill me. It will destroy me. You know? And that is the emotion of the moment it happened being echoed into your current life. Being traumatized. Mm-hmm. But it's also not actually the truth. Right. Not anymore. Because you did the one thing, the hardest thing already. And that is you survived your trauma. This feels like it's going to be harder. But it's not. It's going to be hard. But it's not going to be harder. Well, I think one thing that really, that people kind of fear in general when it comes to pretty much anything is this just kind of fear of the unknown. Like fear of what things would be like if they were different. Who will I be without it? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that comes up a lot usually about a third of the way into the trauma work comes up this whole idea of who am I without my trauma? (laughs) Fuck. I don't know if I want to be a whole new person, you know? And change is scary. Yeah. But also we've always thought the trauma was who we were, Mm -hmm. you know, because that was the big, huge ax that was swinging around, scaring the shit out of us. But actually, we were never that. We were always how we dealt with it. And that ain't going anywhere. Right. Well, thank you so much for this information on adults healing from childhood trauma. Mm -hmm. Switching gears a bit and going back to you as a therapist, what Mm -hmm. kind of experience do you have working with particularly vulnerable clients, such as those who are transgender, undocumented, or BIPOC, to name a few examples? So, yeah, totally. Um, I do not know if I've worked with undocumented clients. Um, I don't ever ask for documents. I do know that I have at least (laughs) one client who is using a fake name. If you don't use insurance, there's no reason why you have to tell me your name. You can tell me whatever name you want. doesn't matter to me. Um, So I know, you know, that way in that means but I've worked with people of different races, different ethnicities. I have a list. Or, That's a hard word. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it is. Um, different ethnicities, different gender identities. Um, I was actually kind of surprised with the frequency with which I end up having trans clients. Um, I think it's because all my, sh- all my pictures on my website have me in a shirt and tie, which I think I look dashing in. Um, but <laughs> I, nice. I had never put that out as my, my field of area. So having gotten that as a kind of clientele group that has shown up on my doorstep has been interesting. 
Well, I mean, I think all therapists need to know how to work with with trans clients and the particular individual, the particular stressors and situations that trans and gender diverse mm-hmm. people experience because, you know, trans people have a suicide attempt rate of 41%. We can't even begin to gather statistics on uh, completion rates because that's so complicated because of the ways you know, gender may be documented, for example. Um, Mm -hmm. And so it's important. 41% is extremely high. And Mm -hmm. there are a lot of societal factors that impact, I think, a lot of trans people seeking support through therapy. And I'm just really glad for that, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I totally agree that every therapist needs to be able to work with everybody. But I think sometimes from the other side there is a i want to see myself in my therapist and that is perfectly valid you know i i often say when i'm looking for a therapist i was looking for a couple's therapist the other day and i was like we, we, we were like okay so we're queer but that's not the problem right and right. whatever you person you think will work well with us needs to understand that that's not the problem Right, right. And, and I think that that's also an assumption that a lot of therapists make that, you know, somebody who is trans is seeking therapy because they're trans. And oftentimes mm-hmm. that's not even the case in a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. And being able to put it aside, but also bring it back in when it actually might be attached to the problem. Right. Like you know? in terms of like macro systems, you know, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and being able to just to, to, to put it you know, to bring it up as an option and be totally accepting of the individual saying that's so, isn't it? And be like, okay, cool. Or, Hey, have you thought of, and then going, Oh yeah, that, that, fuck that again. (laughs) (laughs) I had a client give me some of the best feedback that I've ever gotten last night after at the end of a session, my client said, I find myself doing the things you've taught me and I find it annoyingly helpful. <laughs> 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 uh, that's the best feedback I've ever gotten. I, I, yeah. I just appreciate that on so many levels. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I've got this one client who I think swears at me whenever I've really hit the nail on the head. And I'm like, yep, got it. Yeah, that was followed by, damn it, Noah, why are you so so effective at your job? (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah. But at the same time, it's so good to hear that. Oh, yeah, for sure, for sure. So in thinking about, and and I love this question, I think it's super interesting, and Amanda and I talked a little bit about it on last week's episode, like in terms of her perceptions of being on the client end of that, um, so are you a therapist who will, who will laugh or cry with your clients? And, and when, I, when I'm saying crying, I don't mean like yeah. absolutely bawling, just like shedding a tear or two, you know? Um, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So laughter is a huge part of um, trauma work, period, in my opinion. Oh, First yeah. of all, I used laughter growing up to manage the emotional intensity of the room. Mm-hmm. You know, that kid is always reading the room and trying to make sure everybody's okay. And right. one of the things I had to do is when I started working to become a therapist was learn to put that use of it aside, but keep that thing of 
we can use it to manage the intensity of the room, but we're not trying to get it back to okay. We're just trying to get it back to within a workable limit. Right. You know, so the, the humor is still a big part of that, you know, kind of that kind of thing. So humor comes in. Um, my wife, I'm working from home and I have a noise machine outside my room. So my wife can't actually hear what's being said. Mm-hmm. But she said the one thing that she found really, really surprising once she started being in the house while I was doing therapy with clients was how often I laugh. That's so funny. I I recently moved in with a roommate and that's exactly what he told me. I have a sound machine outside my door and he was like, I can't ever hear anything except laughing. You laugh a lot. (laughs) I was like, yeah, I guess so. So that's interesting you Mm -hmm. say that. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's great because sometimes when you when you when you get something moved, it's good to really laugh about the difference, mm-hmm. you know, laugh about the change, laugh about, oh, my God, this is dark, right. you know, all of it. And about, I have oh, occasion- I have occasionally cried. It's mm-hmm. been more of a caught a tear kind of thing. Yeah. And that's always been around clients moving something really fucking huge and just yeah. being in awe of that. Uh, that's the same case for me. Um, you know, there's just really touching and like healing and just like moments of emotion mm-hmm. sometimes that are difficult to describe because sometimes it's just very abstract. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So earlier you talked about holding space. How would you define holding space for someone? I think... <laughs> Sorry, I'm laughing because I literally had a client one time who had me sitting in silence for 15 minutes and I actually timed it. And it <laughs> was actually 15 minutes. So part of that is the use of silence, allowing them the room to pull their thoughts together and think about these things. But first, before that can ever happen, it's the encouraging to slow down and to choose whether or not to share. It's the encouraging to to allow them to get a feel for me you know it's those kind of things it's it's creating a room that feels safe it's creating a space that feels safe it's creating you know it's all those layers like my office is like my actual office is like very busy but it's really comfortable too you know and there's fidget toys everywhere and there's stuff like that but and then it's, it's accepting their truth, mm-hmm. not judging it or jumping on it or being curious in a weird way about it, but just hearing them. People's stories are sacred, and I'm, I'm always honored to, to be in that with those people. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. Okay. I like that definition. What about the best advice you've ever received from a supervisor or anyone for that matter? It wasn't actually a supervisor. It was a lady who had, uh, who was further ahead than me. I was a student in school and she was out in the field running her own practice, that kind of thing. And, and I was talking about feeling like I was flying by the seat of my pants kind of thing. And she's like, Sean, it's not flying by the seat of your pants. 
It's that you are synthesizing and putting together all of the information that you have gathered, both out of school and in school, and you are putting it together in a new way, and that new way is what's working for you. So it was a yeah. real boost to trust, to learn to trust my gut, to, to yeah. learn that flying by a sheet of the pants is actually a good thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't know about you, but I never enter a session with like some sort of preconceived notion or agenda. You know, I think mm -hmm. it's so important as a therapist to, to be able to do that because you don't mm -hmm. know what's going to happen that day in that session. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I'll, I'll glance back at the last session, but I'm not doing it to know where I have to go next. It's just right, so, right. a reference point. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. What have you personally learned about yourself and or the world through your practice? Hmm. You know, I guess a small part of me was worried that focusing my practice on trauma would burn me out. I would, you know, two, three years from now, be sitting, you know, in some agency doing shit ass work, tired kind of thing. And uh, what I've discovered from sitting in the room and helping people and doing that thing is I hold it differently. Because when I see these clients, I don't see the trauma. I see that they're here trying, which means they already are here. They're already present. So I'm already in awe of having gotten through that, whatever that is. You know, and then I'm just like, I want you to be amazed by yourself too, because Jesus Christ, you're amazing. You know, and that allows me to, to sit with a great deal of really insanely intense stuff. And come home, now my wife will tell you that when I come home, the first thing that happens is I spend about an hour to two hours with my brain just turned off. It's just done. There's no, I'm like, blah, 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 blah. I'm <laughs> useless. But once that passes, because I've just been so focused, once that passes, I'm good. I want to be with my family. I want to have fun. I want to, you know, relax and that kind of thing. What do you do to take care of yourself? Oh, gosh. So, well, family, <laughs> four cats, two dogs, well, three dogs right now, but um, I like to go for walks with my wife in the parks around here. Um, we have a, our, our, our daughter is out in the world doing her thing back temporarily, but mainstream, but our son is special needs. I like to say that, uh, we don't ever have to let him go. We get to keep him forever. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we, we, you know, he, he does play like as that two or three-year-old kind of thing. And that can be a really fun thing to lean into. Yeah. You know? I could see that for sure. Yeah. Just, I mean, the, just even the innocence of that, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, out of the blue, he starts handing me like you know things that he wants me to hold as he stacks them higher and higher and higher and higher and higher on my hand. <laughs> and as soon as they fall, he wants to start again. Stacks them higher. That's a, a fun game. I think I 
would have a, a hard time staying still enough for something like that. <laughs> as long as I can still get one hand for the phone, I can, I can stay with him forever. That's that true. One. There you go. There you go. Although if I had to use both hands and I'd be bored. <laughs> but if I could actually fully engage or at least half engage, I'd be all in. Yeah. yeah. Now, the next question is one of my other favorite questions. How would you define happiness? Oh, God. So, hmm. so a lot of clients will tell me, I, I just want to be happy. And I'm always telling them, then stop aiming for happiness. Start doing things that you might be fun, that you might feel like you did a good thing. Start working towards goals because happiness is a side effect of whatever those wonderful goals are that are personally satisfying. So it's like happiness is that side, the, 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 the extra sauce that comes from doing what you love. Mm-hmm. You know, it's, like it comes from, from stepping back and looking at the damn shed that I just built, you know, I actually <laughs> built a, a little half-assed one to tie to, to put the mower in. Um, <laughs> That's handy. Yeah. And I was just, I was just so freaking tickled pink with it afterwards. I'm standing there going, it's that. <laughs> yes, I am that cheesy. <laughs> <laughs> hey, everybody needs a little bit of cheesy. I've been known to tell lots of bad dad jokes, apparently. <laughs> so so I, I hear you. <laughs> yeah. Um, next questions are a little vulnerable, although you kind of answered one of them before. First one is, what is the most embarrassing moment you've had as a clinician to date? You know, I was reading this question when you sent me the questions, and I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> right. So it has to be an embarrassing question that doesn't reveal anything about a client. That was, I was thinking, oh my God, I got to find the right way in that. But then I went and did something stupid today. So, hey, I've got a brand new story for you. (laughs) Well, tell us. Yes. So today I was up front in the front of the house in the kitchen wrapping Christmas presents. And, you know, people send texts and reach out to you. And I got a text from a client. Hey, you got an earlier time for for my appointment tomorrow. And I stop and I look and I'm like, let me figure out that. And yep, got that all moved around. No problem. Went back to wrapping my presents. I got all the presents for my wife wrapped and I had them stacked in this really cool stack. And I took a picture of them and I sent them and I said, got your presents wrapped. And my wife gets home an hour later. And she's like, you didn't send me no picture. <laughs> yeah, I sent it to my client. Ah, that's hilarious. That is a good one. That's a really good one. I think that's maybe my favorite one yet. (laughs) So so what'd you do? I sent a really quick message. Oh my fucking God, I'm sorry. That goes to my my wife. (laughs) And they sent back, no problem. (laughs) That's awesome. (laughs) Thank you for sharing that. So the next vulnerable question is, are you in therapy or have you ever been in therapy? Oh, my God. Yes, I, I've been in. Oh, God. More than I can name. Um, starting when I was 16. Still living at home. Went to a state agency kind of place on and off again, all the way through up through even while I was truck driving. I was seeing a lady by phone. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, uh, right this moment, 
I am not. I'm between therapists, um, but definitely looking to post Christmas once the finances rebalance, get back into therapy again. Uh, not because there's crisis going on, but just because I still have to do my work. Yeah. And some of it has to do with being a therapist with a trauma history, working with trauma. And some of it has to do just with my own damn trauma. Yep. Sorry, folks. It's never 100% done. Yeah, I think, you know, one thing I, I talk with my clients about regarding trauma is that, unfortunately, like, we can't, there's no, like, magic men in black thing that erases your brain, you know? Um, and, and it's the sort of thing that is managed. Um, mm-hmm. And so I like to well, set up that kind of more realistic expectation. Mm-hmm. The military was working on something like that, trying to figure out how to keep memories from recording post. They go out in the field, they come back, they take a pill, they don't remember it. But I was just like, yeah, but it's not just written in the cortex. It's also written in the limbic system and in the body. And that stuff will then stay there. And how the fuck do you process stuff that has been literally erased? but it's yeah. still there. Yeah, I'm no. sure the government probably hasn't shared their final dossiers on that, I would imagine. <laughs> well, you know, usually the most trouble we ever get into as a society is around trying to find a quick fix for a really big problem. True. Um, can think of many examples within the pandemic <laughs> alone. <laughs> yep. <laughs> Well, Sean, is there anything else you think would be good for a potential client or other therapist to know about you or your practice? I think you've asked a lot of questions. I can't think of anything off the top of my head. All right. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It's been a real pleasure. It has. It's been fun. I had a blast. Thank you for listening to NextQuest Podcast. I learned something new today, and I hope you did too. NextQuest Podcast will be taking a break for the holidays, and we'll be returning in January with Amanda as co-host. Stay tuned for the first episode of the new year on January 10th, featuring Hector Del Toro, licensed professional counselor, who'll be speaking about his practice in an area of interest, men and masculinity. NextQuest Podcast is sponsored by Jan Dimmitt Resources, Save yourself the time and stress of credentialing and let the experts at Jan Dimmitt Resources do what they do best. For over 20 years, Jan Dimmitt Resources has provided administrative support and credentialing services to mental health professionals in Texas and beyond. Visit their website at jandimmitt.com. That is J-A-N-D-I-M-M-I-T-T.com or call 512-731-5725 for more information on all the ways they can make running your practice easier for you. NextQuest Podcasts relies solely on donations to keep this project going. Please consider becoming a patron on my Patreon page at www.patreon.com slash nextquestpodcast 
or you can make a one-time donation on my website at www.nextquestcounseling.com slash aboutnextquestpodcast. You can also support the podcast by liking our Facebook page. Until next question, this is Noah Garcia signing off.